Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian, and I'm here today with Dan. Hey, Brian. It's the holiday season. That's right. When we're recording here, we're about a week out from Christmas. Should go live about four days ahead of Christmas. Thanks for joining us once again. We're here to talk about a movie. In this case, the film that I have selected is the 2001 romantic comedy Kate and Leopold, starring Meg Ryan and Hugh Jackman. Now, this was directed by James Mangold, who would later direct Hugh Jackman in The Wolverine and Logan. Have you tracked this movie down, Dan? I have. So uh, there's actually an interesting story behind that. So uh, you and I were, were chatting, and we noted that the Wikipedia page notes that there are two versions of the film, two cuts of the film. The theatrical cut, which is 118 minutes, and then the director's cut, which is 123 minutes and is apparently a lot closer to the original version before they had to do some last minute edits before it went to theaters. So we both found this streaming, but it, the length was 118 minutes, which made us think that it was the theatrical cut, even though Wikipedia says whenever you buy this movie now, it's it's always the director's cut. So I managed to find a, a Blu-ray rip from recently and sure enough, it was two hours and three minutes. So I I did track it down, and I think I watched a different version of the film than you did. Yes, it's interesting because on Wikipedia, it says, and I quote, The director's cut, lasting 123 minutes, is the only circulating version of the film. The hastily censored theatrical cut, lasting 118 minutes, has completely lost its viewership since the director's cut became available to the North American public in 2012. Well, that is patently false, because if you look up Kate and Leopold on Roku, the version that comes up on Tubi is the theatrical cut. Same thing with Amazon Prime. The rental, their digital version, is 118 minutes, so I assume it is the theatrical cut. So in fact, yes, the bodlerized censored cut is the one making its rounds officially online. So that is what I saw. And so we may have some discrepancies in our plot summary. This is a time travel movie. Well, we'll, we'll get into it in our summary, but <laughs> basically what the bodlerized cut cut out was any mention that the time traveler is related to Hugh Jackman. Right. So uh, Liv Schreiber plays the time traveler, and it is definitely mentioned in the cut that I saw several times that he's the great, great something son of Hugh Jackman's character of Leopold. And that was removed from my cut. So I may defer to you, Dan, <laughs> for some questions that I have. Well, I can predict that I'm not going to be able to answer all of them because there definitely are still some holes in the time travel aspect in the cut that I saw. Good to know. So I wanted to start out by talking a little bit about my motivation for selecting this film. I touched on it a little last week, but so far on the podcast, a lot of the movies I have selected have been ones I've enjoyed for a long time and just wanted to share with somebody new and talk about at length. Dan, for his part, has done a really good job picking movies that neither of us have seen and both of us have wanted to see at some point. 
So I've tried to do one or two like that as well. This kind of falls into a third category for me, which is movies that I saw the trailer for it a long time ago and thought it looked interesting. But then when it came out in theaters, the reviews were bad. And so I never ended up seeing it, but I still want to. So this is the first such pick of that type. And I was definitely curious to check it out. Had you heard anything about this movie going in, Dan? The name sounded vaguely familiar, but I couldn't have told you anything about it. So it was basically just uh, completely shot in the dark for me. So yeah, it was it was uh, something I came came into with basically no advanced knowledge other than it was a time travel movie. And I tried to like stay blind of reviews and backstory. I didn't even read the Wikipedia article except for a quick skim prior to watching it, which is where I saw the thing about the the cuts of the movies. But yeah, I knew basically nothing before before I hit play. I'm just going to name drop one other movie that will eventually come up in this category for me of films where I saw the trailer and wanted to check it out, even though people have subsequently told me the movie was bad. This is Now You See Me, the movie about magicians who rob a bank. Have you heard anything about that one? I think I remember this one. I think, doesn't it have Jesse Eisenberg in it? It's got an incredible cast. It's got Jesse Eisenberg. It's got Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman. Yeah, I would definitely watch that. So that's com- And it got a sequel. So that's coming up at some point. Is the sequel called Now You Don't? <laughs> it really should be. I don't think it is. And, and that's the biggest failing for me, for sure. <laughs> but now on to the topic at hand. Kate and Leopold came out in theaters on Christmas Day, 2001. So I'm continuing my trend of tying any films we select for the Christmas season to a Christmas theme. So this this one fits. It's a Christmas movie. If it was depicted to be in December or it was released in December, it is a Christmas movie. Exactly. We're <laughs> expanding. This is a big tent approach to Christmas films. That really That really simplifies the diehard debate for sure. Definitely. You can call this the Oscar-nominated film, Kate and Leopold, because Sting wrote a song called Until, which was nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song and actually won the Golden Globe. Oh, wow. Where was this in the movie? Was it in the credits? I would guess it must have been in the credits. Because I think the opening of the credits still had the score. I don't know if it had the Sting song, but maybe it came a little later. Usually there's like two songs in the credits. Right. And Hugh Jackman was also nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor, Musical, or Comedy. Not that a Golden Globe nomination carries all that much weight, but... That's not nothing. There were some people in this movie's corner. I mean, yeah, for sure, like... I saw, I looked it up afterwards. It got a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, that's not great, but that to me is mixed reviews because it's like right down the middle. Half the people who saw it liked it, half the people who didn't. So, you know, not necessarily an absolute flop. Certainly not considered a masterpiece or a, a hallmark of romantic comedies. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the Rotten Tomatoes score because that was the one thing I checked when making this pick. 50%, so it seems people were polarized. I was interested to see the film and make a judgment for myself. So Dan talked about the discrepancies between the two versions, this five minute difference in runtime, and we'll see how that affects our understanding of the movie as we dive now into the recap. 
I have a hunch at, at a high level there won't be that many differences other than the the specific plot point about the relationship already mentioned, but we'll see and we'll definitely have to, to discuss afterwards to see maybe how it impacted the movie. So this movie opens in like an old-timey clock tower. There's gears spinning around, time ticking by in this big clock. As far as I'm concerned, you got to start a time travel movie <laughs> off with clocks. That's the Back to the Future way. It's time tested. I'll go. I'll go one further on on what they did here. They not just showed clocks, but the opening line. Do you remember what the opening line is? Okay. <laughs> one thing to throw in here is I watched all three High School Musical movies last night, so <laughs> I am more removed from this week's film than normal. And I watched this movie today, so I'm probably a little fresher on it than you. <laughs> so what is the first line? The first line of Kate and Leopold is the word time, as we are looking at gears and a clock. Some some guy is giving a speech that Leopold is at, and he says, time! And then he goes on to pontificate on the nature of time as the fourth dimension. But I just thought that was almost hilariously on the nose to, to open with him talking about time they say it's the fourth dimension yeah this is not a card that they're hiding (laughs) up their sleeve this is a motif they're trying to drive home uh but it is accompanied by some charming score by the composer rolf kent yeah i thought the score was good i agree and we get introduced now to star hugh jackman as the nobleman leopold the duke of albany and they kind of make some comic hay out of He's the Duke of Albany, and he's in New York, which has a city called Albany. But apparently the Albany that he is a Duke of refers to a region in Scotland. Oh, yeah, that joke just kind of whizzed by me. I didn't think about that one too much, but 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 I see there, yeah. Leopold is in attendance at the dedication of one end of the Brooklyn Bridge by the German engineer who built it, John Roebling. And so, as Dan said, Roebling's making this big speech to a crowd of 1876 bystanders. Hugh Jackman is there observing and taking sketches of the incomplete bridge. But then he notices a man in the background who is taking pictures. And at this point, we've seen a couple photographers with their old-timey cameras, you know, that make the big puff of smoke and have a really long exposure time. But this man has got a little tiny spy camera that he's clicking away with. So it's a pretty clear anachronism that catches Hugh Jackman's attention. And immediately, I scratch my chin at this. I mean, I personally think that uh, the two best performances here in this movie are are Jackman and Schreiber. And there was like kind of a, a little charge between them. I knew that since they had cut some stuff, if it was going to go down the route of like implied gayness, but it never it never went there. But I felt a little bit of charge between them when they were chasing after each other. Interesting. Now, of course, I did not watch the extended cut. <laughs> the one I watched was censored. So it's, who knows what went on in those five minutes? But <laughs> there's also a moment where Roebling is referring to his building as an erection. And the time traveler is snickering at that. And people are kind of like, what? That's a perfectly cromulent word. It's <laughs> There's nothing out of place about him saying that. But the time traveler is back there taking pictures with his tiny camera and laughing. 
and not really trying very hard to be inconspicuous, frankly, when it comes to time traveling. So Leopold takes off after the time traveler, who, as Dan said, is played by Lee Schreiber, but fails to catch him and ultimately returns home. Leopold is staying at his uncle's house. We find that Leopold is interested in science and making inventions. Like we see a small prototype that he's made of an elevator. It's like a little erector set elevator that he's got in his office. The uncle encourages Leopold to find a wife because we learn that Leopold is now past his 30th year. <laughs> and so it's time that he's got to settle down. This is especially important because apparently the royal family is in debt. They just have a title to their name and not a lot of money. So the uncle has hit on this idea that Leopold should hook up with a rich American heiress who will be able to offset their debts. And so to achieve this goal, the uncle has set up a ball where Leopold can meet several such eligible heiresses. First and foremost among these heiresses is Kristen Schaal. Yeah, poor poor Kristen Schaal here. He's like typecast as the homely one, the uncharming one when... I mean, maybe I just have residual affection towards her, but I, hey, you could do worse than well, Kristen Schaal. That's true. Kristen Schaal is very good, but I think we have to agree that the thing she excels most at is voice work. <laughs> that's true. She she has one of the most distinct voices in Hollywood. I know her number one from Bob's Burgers for, for voice work, but if I'm not mistaken, she was on Gravity Falls and BoJack Horseman too. Right. Right. She's done a lot of cartoon voices. She does appear on camera occasionally. She's in Flight of the Concords. She's in 30 Rock. So it happens. But she has a distinctive look for sure. Yeah. Uh, but Leopold retreats to his quarters at this point where he encounters the time traveler again. When there's no references in my cut to the two of them being related... I'm very curious as to why the time traveler is in his house. I, I don't know what the explanation is for him being drawn there if they aren't understood to be related. It is not particularly clear, I have to say. I was wondering if it was going to be like to solve some problem or something like that. It, he, it's, he's taking pictures of the schematics, like of the the little toy elevator. So... He's clearly after that, too, because then he tries to avoid detection. So I, that's why I thought that it was going to have something to do with the elevators. That's why he was going back in time. But it, again, it's, it's not really actually given any explanation, but it has something to do with both him being the great grandfather and like he, he's trying to get sneaky pictures of the elevator that got invented. I, I don't know. Oh, man. Well, I've got some elevator questions for you, too. <laughs> it seems like in either cut... Lieb Schreiber is just hell-bent on breaking all the good practices of time traveling. Yeah, it's like he hasn't seen any of those movies. Yeah, stick out in a crowd, immediately contact your relatives in the past. <laughs> just poor form. So Leopold finds him taking pictures again, and the time traveler runs off once more. This time, though, Leopold is able to keep up better, and we get this whole chase scene through the streets of old New York back to the Brooklyn Bridge again. The time traveler scales the tower at least part way up and Leopold shimmies up after him 
and is trying to stop him from jumping off the bridge. But the time traveler says, no, it's all right, let me go. And they end up both falling down off the side of the bridge and they disappear through a portal that's kind of suspended halfway up the height of the bridge over the side. So when I was watching this scene, I was like, holy shit, this is a beautiful little action sequence directed really well. The production, the set design was awesome. Like I wanted to spend more time in this this bridge from the, the olden times. And I, at this point, by the way, I did not know that James Mangold was the director. And even if I had known, I'm not sure I would have connected it, but he basically has only done thrillers and action movies since this. And it is not at all a surprise to me because the direction for any of the actual action stuff here, whether it was the chase scene or some of the stuff later on, was like really well directed. And something about the cinematography in the old times, they did kind of like this sepia toned, like warm yellow filter on everything. That was just really pleasant to look at. I was digging the uh, visual vibe of this film, even though I know like typically you don't think too much about that stuff in romantic comedies. Well, I agree. Like across the board, at least in terms of visuals, I was impressed with the production values. The next morning, Leopold awakens in the Time Traveler's apartment in 2001. So we're now in New York City, 2001. The Time Traveler introduces himself as Stuart, who explains very nonchalantly, I must say, that he's been able to calculate when and where time portals will appear. Like, he doesn't really have a mad scientist vibe. I mean, he's a little kooky, but he just seems pretty normal. He does not really strike me as like a Doc Brown type. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I mean, it is definitely very like, oh, I just figured out time trap, like hand wavy. Like I have this book that I read to my daughter. It's um, five minute Marvel stories. Her her uncle, my, my wife's brother, got it for her. And there's one story in there where it's like Iron Man and, and one of the other main Avengers are like, man, we don't have any free time. We spend all of our free time chasing down villains. Wouldn't it be great if we just had a little bit of extra time? And then here's the next paragraph. So they went to Iron Man's lab and they figured out how time travel worked so that they could then go back in time and spend more time relaxing. And this ultimately creates a time rift with dinosaurs coming back to the present in this little story. The reason I bring it up is because this movie is about as hand wavy about the time travel as that five minute story from the the Marvel book was. Sounds like it. One more thing about the pre-time jump forward is, I don't know if you immediately noticed it or not, but how he bumps into Meg Ryan. And I was trying to tell if we were supposed to notice it or not. Uh, I definitely immediately recognized her, but like it doesn't really linger on her. You just kind of see her. And then as he's running away, as Hugh Jackman is running away. Oh, I was curious about that. I did not notice her, but that's important to our discussion later on. Right. So you see her in the the gray dress that she ultimately will be in in the climax of this film. And it reminded me of the show How I Met Your Mother. Sorry to bring in all these different connections here, but it reminded me of the show How I Met Your Mother. There was an episode in the third season where Ted, the narrator, says, and your mother was at that bar that night. So it was like a St. Patrick's Day and he goes to a party at a bar. And this is like the first time that we might actually get to see the mother of the title who Ted will eventually meet. And there's one scene in there where as he's going to get a drink, 
he bumps into a woman and she looks up at him and says, oh, sorry, excuse me, and then walks away. And like there was no reason for them to include it. It was always a popular fan theory that that was supposed to be the mother and like he he just happened to bump into her in a bar. And I got that exact vibe where as Hugh Jackman was kind of running out of the ball to chase after the Liv Schreiber character, he bumps into Meg Ryan and we get like a real quick glimpse of her before they're off. Oh man, well now I have a reason to watch it again. <laughs> or at least the first 10 minutes. Was that the mother in How I Met Your Mother or was it somebody else? The mother did end up being someone else, but they referenced it. They brought the actress back who played what fans at the time called the bump girl in, in the bar. Ted Ted bumped into her. So they did bring back the actress who played the bump girl. And when they had cast Kristen Melody as the mother, they kind of showed scenes throughout the, the show's history where the mother was like right on the periphery of it. And she at one point actually has a conversation with bump girl. So they, they did honor it, but it wasn't actually the mother. Gotcha. But yes, extremely hand-wavy <laughs> and nonchalant in terms of how they handle the time travel. It just sort of exists now. He's figured it out. He's done the calculations to know where and when portals will open. And he tells Leopold that the portal back to his time in 1876 is going to reopen in a week. So it's very Back to the Future-esque. It's like, you got to stay here with me and this time for a week, and then you can go back. Right. Although the odd thing is he talks about it. Oh, it happens in cycles. So for me, I was like, well, then why does it need to be this one? If it's something that happens once a week, like why the rush to get him in that specific jump back in time? Why not let him take his time, especially as you're like hospitalized? Well, we'll get to that in a sec, but that's a good question. We don't really learn anything about the cycles beyond that. I would say if you know when there's going to be a time portal, might as well make use of it. <laughs> but as soon as Leopold got snatched from his proper time, we see Kate, Meg Ryan, coming up the elevator in her building. And instantly, there's a problem with the elevator. It like short circuits and is stuck between the floors. And she climbs out of it. You know, if you watch time travel movies, it's like, oh... You know, it's doing like a Marty disappearing from his pictures thing where because the timeline has been changed, ostensibly, now elevators are going away. <laughs> but like the buildings with which the elevators had been built around are still there exactly the same way. The elevator chutes are still there. The whatever you call them, shafts are still there. Yeah, this did not make a lot of sense to me. I agree that that was the vibe that I was getting too, and I think that is kind of what they were going for. But A, it makes even less sense than Marty disappearing, which I, as we talked about last week, already kind of introduces its own set of plot holes. But why would elevators just disappear? I guess because he wasn't there to invent them, but that's like the singular ripple that happens from him not being in the past. I don't know. And, I mean, I'll you'll get to it, obviously, but it ends up suggesting that it was more of an immutable predestination timeline, which would make even less sense in, the, in this case. Right. So you're, you're saying pretty much everything I thought <laughs> as well. So not to belabor the point too much, but I, I definitely want to talk about elevators for a minute or two here. Because we get this moment where there's some trouble with the elevator. Kate gets out of it. But then a few minutes later, Stuart, who lives in the same apartment building that Kate does... And we're going to find out pretty soon that 
they were in a relationship until recently. Stuart heads down the hall to take his dog for a walk and steps into the elevator shaft, which is now empty. The elevator has disappeared entirely. <laughs> and he falls down the shaft, I guess not far enough that it kills him. His descent is slowed because he like catches on a dog leash. He, he still gets out of this pretty lucky. He's not even like paralyzed or anything. He just breaks his arm and a leg or something. Again, shot pretty cool. It was like a, like a cool action thing. He's hanging on for dear life. I, w- I wanted him to like pull his way up. It's like an action hero. Yeah, you were always able to tell well what was going on in this film, at least in terms of from moment to moment, even if the time travel itself didn't always hold up. Right. So I have a couple more questions <laughs> about the elevator because this elevator disappeared, but did all elevators disappear everywhere? It's unclear. What's more, the shaft is still there, like Dan said. And why would the shaft still be there if elevators had never existed? Why would the building be built with elevators in mind if they didn't exist? Why are people aware that something has disappeared if this is a world where the elevator never existed to begin with? What it made me think most of was an episode of Jimmy Neutron featuring Jimmy bringing Thomas Edison to the present. And once he does it, electrical stuff starts disappearing and being replaced with like gaslight equivalents up to the point that like movies disappear and everybody's watching shadow puppets at the the movie theater. Well, that one has more internal logic than this one does. Like that one, there's at least a replacement here. It's just no... No more elevators, just elevator shafts. It's not like there's, I don't know, like spiral staircases or something instead, you know? Right. But that episode of Jimmy Neutron came out in 2002. So I wonder if maybe they saw Kate and Leopold and (laughs) thought, you know what? We can do one better than this. So I I do feel like there was a couple of mentions. It was people were like, why aren't any of the elevators working? that were in the script. Maybe that was one of the things that was cut in the five minutes though. But the gist that I got is that it was happening everywhere, not just in that building. I agree that like, it doesn't really make sense. Like why would, wouldn't people start saying things that existed no longer exist? That feels like a defiance of the laws of physics and reality that we understand. Maybe we should be talking about this. It's like people like treat it like, ah, my coffee was cold this morning, you know? Exactly. If this was a widespread problem, you think it would be on the news more than it seems to be. We don't get a lot of reports like in 12 Monkeys where we've got the, you know, all the news stories unfolding alongside the main narrative that we're focused on. But people would just be talking about it. It's like, where'd all the elevators go? Yeah. And just think about in 2020 when the monolith, the shiny rectangle thing that appeared in national parks when it appeared and then disappeared, that's all anyone wanted to talk about. Like it was the buzz of the world. And that was just like one little isolated thing. If all elevators in the universe stopped existing, well, I guess this assumes that we still know what elevators are because people were still talking about them. That would be a one top of the fold New York times, man. The great elevator incident of 2001. Yeah. Especially in New York, it would have a big effect. That's true. And on top of that, We'll return to it, but it's very unclear if this timeline is mutable. 
the elevator problem would suggest that it is. Everything else would suggest that it is not. They seemed, especially at the end, to try to make it seem like all time trips are already part of the set loop, just like in 12 Monkeys. Agreed. I, I completely agree with that summary. And I mean, I think the answer is not that, What can we crack the nut? What is the actual, what are the actual rules here? I think they just didn't think that much about it and just kind of hand waved it away. But this is the goods. And so we're, we're going to focus, <laughs> going to keep a positive mindset. We're going to move forward. I did excise this bit from the Wikipedia article. It says, according to Stewart's concept, Leopold's unintentional time travel to the 21st century has caused a widespread occlusion of elevators and may cause the disappearance of Stewart himself if Leopold doesn't go back on Monday. There's like one throwaway line from it. So he does, he does like kind of flip on that. So he thinks it's a mutable timeline and then he changes his mind. There is like one line or two lines where he's begins to wonder if he'll even exist, but it's not like an omnipresent threat. It's just kind of established that it's urgent that he get Hugh Jackman back and just kind of left at that. Right. So that discussion is completely cut from the version that I watched mm. because it's one of the mentions that the two of them are related. Right. And I guess it's just there to prevent the possibility of Leopold staying in the future. Like you said, it gives him a reason to have to go home. Exactly, yeah. So Stuart has fallen down the elevator shaft. He gets taken to the hospital. And once he gets a little too cavalier in discussing his time travel adventures with the doctors, he ends up committed to the hospital's mental ward. And so we've got another movie, second consecutive movie, where a time traveler gets committed to an asylum. That's right. Yeah, there was... <laughs> As I was watching this, I was actually laughing just at all of the the weird connections. It's funny that we ended up choosing another movie where it forces you to consider the angles of time traveling to the past and its ripple effects and what types of time loops you can have. But in just a completely different context, it's a breezy romantic comedy, not a dystopian commentary on how modernity is destroying us. After all, this is a romantic comedy, so we need to establish some romantic connections. So Leopold encounters Kate, who is Stuart's ex-girlfriend and lives in the same building. Actually, she lives exactly one floor underneath Stuart. Yeah, I was trying to parse that one out. I guess the two possible explanations are they already lived that way and that's how they met. And I can see like a version of that being a thing in a past romantic comedy like where they could hear each other and they like gradually met each other like and with without time travel you know or was it that when he moved out or like when they broke up or maybe even during their relationship i don't know he got the apartment there i i don't know if it ever clearly defined how long he had been living there but it was kind of kind of interesting that they lived exactly one floor apart right on top of each other so that they could conveniently use this fire staircase to get between each other's apartments. Yeah, I got the sense that they had been living both in the same building and it was a propinquity thing, as we talked about recently. They just came to meet each other after living in proximity and built a connection that way. Ah, good pull. Uh, specifically, if you've ever heard the song Knock Three Times, that's about a couple who one lives right above the other one in an apartment building. Right. 
So they could do, yeah, like Kate and Leopold episode one, where it's a prequel and it tells that story. And I mean, they could just call it Knock Three Times, <laughs> base it on the song. It would work. Like you said, they have this habit of using the fire escape to scale back and forth and enter each other's apartments that way. I, I've never lived in a big city. I got to say, I'm a little nervous when it comes to fire escapes. I wouldn't go out on a fire escape unless I had to. Like, it's there to serve a purpose. But other than that, it makes me pretty wary. Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of feel like nowadays you can't quite be so cavalier with them. What was the movie we watched? Oh, it was some kind of wonderful where he pulls a fire alarm and it's treated as like a harmless prank. But nowadays, I feel like things that are related to fire safety are much more locked down and taken seriously. Like if someone was was running up and down one of those fire escapes, I don't know, maybe in like a sufficiently modern building, like that would set off some sort of alarm or something like that. Also, Meg Ryan keeps going out on the fire escape barefoot. And that squicked me out. I don't know. <laughs> it, it just seems like the fire escape in a big city would be a gross place to go without any shoes. And it's clearly cold outside. She must have been freezing on that metal. What, what were the screenwriters thinking? What was the, the <laughs> I hope somebody was fired for that blunder. <laughs> but we learned that Kate is a market researcher. So she's involved in advertising. And her current project that she is working on is finding a margarine spokesman who will be capable of charming TV viewers. They review some candidates that they've filmed and none of them are testing well with focus groups. So they, they need somebody who can talk about the virtues of a butter substitute. The very first scene we meet her, other than the quick bump and the, the 1800s, is her at a theater. And I, if I'm not mistaken, they're actually airing a romantic comedy. Or later, it's all about the commercial. So I was confused whether it was supposed to be a commercial. But at the moment, I thought that like the thing that she was providing market research on was a romantic comedy. And I thought we were about to go down into like screwball meta territory where everything was commenting on itself there. She, she talked about how it was like too hokey or I forget what exactly the, the words that she, she used were and like what, what all the audience was saying. But do you remember that at all? Or am I just completely making this up? <laughs> Maybe that's also in the five minutes. <laughs> I don't remember. For sure, our selection for next week will be getting super meta. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, but that would definitely be interesting. I'm sure there have been meta romantic comedies. 100% confident there have been people who have done that. I think there was just one with Rebel Wilson where it was like, it's a romantic comedy. And she like knows she's in one. I know that uh, Scream kind of did that for horror movies. Like that was, and it's been done multiple times since, but like where people think they know they're in a horror movie. So they have to try and figure out what they're supposed to do. I haven't seen Scream, but that's my understanding of the premise of that. Mm hmm. But Leopold's been told that he needs to stay at the apartment until Stuart gets back. And so, at least for a while, he is following that direction. And he befriends several people in his time at the apartment. Especially, he connects with Kate's brother named Charlie, who is a struggling actor. Being an actor, Charlie also assumes that Leopold is like a really, really dedicated method actor, I guess. Yeah, he's like, you're so method, man. And this happens not too long after the scene 
that I thought was of a romantic comedy. I'm going to have to to pull it back up and, and see if I was misreading that or not. But I was like, oh, man, now he's going to be talking about how he's an actor in a, a thing when he's actually truly an actor in a thing. And it's it's going to it's going to spiral out of control there. <laughs> and this would be both meta and time travel. But it, it did not pursue that thread, as we've already discussed. Kate talks Leopold into going outside and they start bonding as they take a couple walks through the city. I gotta say, it feels a little weird looking at 2001 New York City, even though they never really draw attention to it. You don't see the World Trade Center, but you know, it's the last gasp of that era. For me, the thing that made me be like, this is from a previous previous time, a pre whatever delineation you wanna use, 9-11 is probably the easy one, but like a, a previous time period, it almost feels quaint, is like a, we'll get to it, of course, a driving point of the conflict is that diet margarine tastes bad. And like, this is just this terrible thing that we would, we would believe in margarine when it tastes bad. And it's like, Jesus, who even has time to think about that? Maybe in 2001, <laughs> people were concerned about that. But man. On one of their outings, they're in Central Park a guy snatches Kate's purse and Leopold chases him down on horseback. And this was making me think of Elf, where they get chased by the Central Park Rangers on horseback. Oh, man. So that's that's a shout out, Christmas movie shout out that I'm going to work in. So we've talked about, I've used the term the promise of the premise in the past, where you get just like a stretch for some length of time where we just kind of get to experience the central premise and explore it a little bit. And this whole like fish out of water, the guy in 1879 in 2001 was my favorite part. Uh, Hugh Jackman was really funny throughout all of it. And the horse scene was really good. It's just like a very, I laughed out loud when the horse appeared and he chased down. It's just this ludicrous thing in the middle of New York. That, that actually worked really well for me. But my favorite moment of the whole fish out of water gag, and I, I really hope they kept this line in the, the cut that you saw, is when he can't get the toaster to work and he goes on this rant about how <laughs> the the general of electric should have more pride in the work that he does. <laughs> yeah, he I did see that part maintained in my cut. That, that made me laugh pretty hard. He does. I mean, he's an inventor, so he's at least... A couple times he thinks of gadgets and and one that he goes off on a rant on is he wants to toast his toast in between the amount it gets toasted once and the amount it gets toasted if you do it twice right but yeah just the way that he describes it all uh it's it's well written and well delivered like it, it sounds like it would coming out of a nobleman i like that you said promise of the premise what this delivers and what i think it all kind of hinges on is the romantic ideal of the knight in shining armor, that there is a chivalry that has been lost at some point, a gallantry of men that is part of a bygone era. And it's, it's kind of the same thing as, what's that show with the Scottish Highlanders? I think it's called Outlander or something. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it. Where the, uh, the modern right, girl yeah. is with like long-haired, kilted Scottish men from the past. It's that sort of appeal. It's like a romance novel cover. Like you said, Leopold takes breakfast seriously. <laughs> and at one point he expresses his fondness for creamery butter. And 
Kate's like, wait a minute, say that again. Talk, talk about the creamery butter again. She decides that Leopold would be perfect to be the spokesman in this margarine commercial she's got to be responsible for. Now, there's a whole sub-thread in this story that isn't even mentioned on Wikipedia right now. It makes me feel like I need to update the article. But Kate's boss, whose name is JJ, is definitely interested in her. And he's also considering her for a promotion. So there is an implication of quid pro quo to this. Yes. You know, oh, if if it goes somewhere between us, I'll give you the good job. Yeah, very skeevy. Although I, I feel like they didn't go hard enough with that to really drive home how we're supposed to feel. I think they could have made him creepier, more villainous. Now that you say that, I think you're exactly right. Because it lands in this awkward middle spot. What it should have been is, as you said, he's creepier. And it's basically the logical conclusion of making everything practical is that everything is detached from romance and is purely transactional and you feel dehumanized and broken down. What you really need is a true knight in shining armor, someone who believes in ideals and romance and treating a woman with care, etc., not someone who is just going to use you and because you participated in that, you get to climb up the corporate ladder. But instead, they kind of tiptoe around it. They go right up to the line without ever crossing the line so that you just don't quite know how to feel. Yeah. And this guy, JJ, he's Josh from the West Wing. Uh, the actor's name is Bradley Whitford. There are a whole bunch of, oh, that person in this movie. The cop who makes, this is another funny one, the dog poops and the cop makes him pick it up. That whole scene was funny. There was, he had some good lines there too. But that cop was played by Viola Davis. And I was like, I knew I recognized her, but who is she? And it's like a pre-fame Viola Davis. Wow. So they set up this JJ character, the boss, as like a half romantic rival, half villain for this movie, but... It doesn't really stick the landing on either of those points. But Leopold and Charlie, Kate's brother, strike up a friendship that's pretty charming. And they're hanging out and they wind up spending a night out on the town. And we see that there is a difference in the respective level of charm that the two of them possess. Hugh Jackman, obviously, super charming and erudite. And he's got that British accent, which, you know, the American women are very into that, I have heard. And it's not just the accent. He just has this velvety way of speaking. Everything is so perfectly enunciated. And Charlie is lacking that. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's not he's not coming off nearly as captivating. I would say that the reaction of the women at that bar approximately represent my reaction, wherein... A little bit of Breckenmeyer goes a long way for me. And this was a lot of Breckenmeyer in this movie. Had you seen him in anything else? I've seen him in a couple of things. I was trying to remember what I best knew him from. He's in Clueless. He's in the movie Rat Race, which I watched a few times as a kid. Oh, okay. Oh, one other one. He plays John Arbuckle in Garfield the movie. Oh, man. All right. I got to <laughs> dive more into his filmography. And so Leopold is giving Charlie some tips on dating, pitching woo. But 
Charlie kind of off the cuff says, oh, I wonder, Leopold, do you take your own advice? You've got all these tips for wooing women, but I think you've got an interest in my sister and what are you going to do about it? And so they're both buzzed at this point and they decide they're going to go interrupt Kate and JJ's awkward business meeting slash date. So they barge in and Leopold opines that dating someone who you are employing basically makes her a whore. This revelation doesn't end as badly for anyone as it seems like it might. Now that you're pointing this out and we're thinking about it, you're right. All of a sudden, it just kind of happens and then it's gone and nobody is quite sure what to think about it. Like it's almost built up like it's going to be a big blow up, but then they just have a conversation the next day and it gets diffused and I don't know. Yeah, it seems like after this line, Kate should either get mad at Leopold or she should get mad at JJ or maybe both. But really, nobody blows up at anybody. Actually, JJ genuinely seems to reconsider his actions. He, he like pauses and he's like, huh, maybe I have been a creep. Maybe I shouldn't be a creep. Right. And I think it, it could have committed more to that. Like if he had been A, skeevier and B, more repentant afterwards, it might have driven home the, the theme a little bit more. I don't know. But we move away from that moment fairly quickly. It seems like any rivalry that JJ may have posed is now dissipated. And they're all in on Kate's going to be with Leopold, obviously. So Leopold arranges a rooftop date where he hires this violinist from the street corner to come up and play romantic music. And they dance and they kiss for the first time. Things are going good. And Leopold is just about to propose to Kate as they're hanging out, I think, on the fire escape again. But she falls asleep. And this is as the weekend is drawing to a close. We're getting closer to the day Leopold's got to go back through the time portal again. But first, he has to tape his margarine ad. And so they all head together to the studio to film this commercial for Farmer's Bounty brand margarine. One thing here is that it cuts straight from them being on the fire escape to the actual filming of the commercial, which is designed to look like olden times. And for a second, I was like, wait, is he back in time? Why does it look different for all of like five seconds before I realized that it's an ad? It was like a, a weird and jarring cut. That's interesting. Yeah, I've got a weird and jarring cut coming up that I'm going to have a question about. Hugh Jackman does this margarine ad and he delivers his introductory lines with perfect aplomb and everyone is charmed, but then he bites into his sample of the margarine and he recoils because apparently it's gross <laughs> and tastes bad. Of course, as the movie has gone along, we've learned that Leopold is very principled and super dedicated to honesty. And so he balks at deception being inherent in marketing. Why would you tell people that you wanted that if they don't really want that? I know that we're supposed to be on his side, but I gotta be honest that I kind of, this whole, maybe I'm just getting older and jaded or something, but I was like, yeah, like you can't be principled about every stinking little thing. Like you just can't operate in a society that way. That's not how it works. I mean, I know that we're supposed to romanticize chivalry, but like, She's doing good work and it's, and it, that's the thing is it's not like 
they're harming people. They're just like playing it up. They're like, oh, it doesn't, it tastes nearly as good as butter. You wouldn't even know. It's, it is a deception, but it's not like they're sneaking rat poison in the margarine. I don't know. It felt kind of weak toothed to me. I was kind of sympathizing with Kate for a lot of this. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That's basically the discussion that they have is Leopold criticizes Kate for lacking integrity and she immediately fires back that he is disconnected from reality because he's this rich guy who everything is theoretical to him and he's never had to work in his life. And so he's in a privileged position and can act this way, doesn't have to worry about making money and so can hold these high principles. Although I also think it's interesting to consider what would a person from 200 years ago think tasting American (laughs) food now that it's all processed to hell and over salted and everything. I don't know. I think it would be something interesting to explore further. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. This moment was odd for me because I will say I haven't watched all that many romantic comedies But of the ones that I have, by far my least favorite element is that late in the second act or early in the third, you got to have this moment where they fight over something. You know, you think for a little bit, oh, this is going to drive them apart and they're not going to wind up together. But then ultimately they reevaluate and they end up together. Oh, yeah. Why why you always got to manufacture this late game conflict? Right. And it's always there when it's good. It can be compelling, not because you don't know whether or not they're going to end up together, but because if it's, again, if it's done right, it forces you to kind of confront the values that they are thinking of. Because obviously they're undergoing some change. Usually it's like, well, if I go this direction, then I'm going to have to give up this. And really we're different in this way because this, and is it really worth it to be in love when I would have to give up this or have to change in this way, etc. So it's never really about the, like, are they actually going to get back together? But it's it's like kind of more about the character development of the characters themselves. And to that regard, I actually am not as down on this one as you are. I actually thought this one was okay. Because basically, Kate was kind of getting swept away in this romance of, like, the kind that you see on <laughs> cheesy book covers with flowers and rooftop violin dates etc like this is the moment when it kind of comes crashing back yeah if you're gonna deal with this then you're also gonna have to deal with the fact that he's detached from reality and for him maybe a little bit less compellingly but like if this is what modern society is i don't belong here i don't want any part of it i don't want a woman who's a part of it where part of the currency is is lying and using each other basically so I didn't hate it. It's it's not the cheapest one, but obviously you don't for a second really believe that they are destined to be separate. Well, you're opening my eyes a little bit. You're kind of changing my mind. <laughs> yeah, it just struck me as a moment where they're going to fight over this butter commercial. That's what's going to do it. You know, it, it's kind of like he's shipping off to war in the morning and, and don't fight over something trivial like this. Because, you know, it's it's he's shipping out back to back in time in the morning. It's like, don't don't let this pull you apart. But does he know that at this point? I'm trying to remember. So Stuart is still in the institution at this point, I think. Does Leopold know that he's supposed to return in the morning or the next day or whatever? 
or yeah i think that's the one part of exposition that stewart gives him right away okay gotcha like as soon as they wake up he's like okay next portal's in a week you gotta stick around i'm going that's out right. yeah. and then he falls in the elevator shaft Although we can perhaps forgive Leopold for maybe not being in the zone on the timing of things, given this new world that he's entered and all, all this stuff that's happening. Oh, yeah. And just before they went through the portal, Stuart maced him, too. <laughs> I forgot about that. So they've quarreled now, and it's the morning where Leopold has to go back in time. And this is where I had a question about the differences between cuts, because in the version that I watched... Stuart takes Leopold back to his own time, but it happens entirely off screen. In the version that you watched, did it show him taking Leopold back or was it, did Stuart just say, okay, well, I took him back. I think it does cut pretty abruptly. Whereas Kate's, when she goes in a minute, sorry to jump ahead in the plot, that one is given a little bit more focus on the actual transition. So we do get a moment where they find the uncle house in the present it's like this historically preserved new york mansion that's when leopold proves a hundred percent to kate that he is a time traveler because there's this secret drawer in the wall that's been papered over and he knows where it is and opens it up and shows her his trinkets from the past this led to maybe the biggest contrivance coincidence of the plot for me i was unclear on the exact proximity but the promotion ceremony seems to be at the mansion or near the mansion because she like goes back up to the room and sees it again. It's like, she's kind of reconsidering should she actually be with Leopold, etc., before she goes down to get the promotion on stage. I don't know if his house happened to be the exact place where she was getting her promotion. That's a little bit of a plot contrivance. <laughs> I've got to watch it again. <laughs> We've stepped back and forth a couple scenes here. Yes. So Leopold's gone back to his time and Kate has received the promotion that she was gunning for without having to do anything sleazy because JJ has just said, you know what? You're a good worker. I'm going to proceed up the ladder and go do big things elsewhere. And here you can be my number one point person in New York. So there's this ceremony that is partially to honor her promotion. I think also there's some merger between companies involved. And this is going on, a big fancy dinner, possibly in Leopold's house in the present. Kate goes up to make her acceptance speech to get this bauble, this promotion. But in the meantime, Charlie and Stuart are looking at the pictures that Stuart snapped on his little camera in 1876. And they find that Kate is in the pictures. So as Dan indicated, Meg Ryan was actually there at the party in the past. So the two of them put together that, wait a minute, Kate's future is in the past. And they run up to her at the banquet and are gesturing from the back of the hall as she's making her speech. It reminded me of a moment that I'm sure pops up in a bunch of romantic comedies, but it made me specifically think of the airport scene at the end of Crocodile Dundee, where she's like at the other end of a crowd and she's about to get on a plane. And then Crocodile Dundee is there like waving and she's got to make her way back, make her way through the crowd. He's got to get her attention and she's got to make a decision. Right. I would say that that is a very strong trope in romantic comedies as a way to like try and raise the tension towards the end is 
when one of them realizes that they're meant to be with the other, they have to chase it down. And it's funny you mentioned an airport scene because I think this like stereotypically happens at an airport. Like in Love Actually, there's one with that, although that one's the the kids. The the last scene of Friends, or not the last scene, the last episode, tried to subvert this a little bit because you don't actually see them reunite at the airport, but you like get through phone messages some tension on whether or not Rachel is going to hop off the plane before uh, before it takes off because Ross didn't quite make it in time. But yeah, I mean, you see people racing to the airport in, in romantic comedies all the time, for sure. Although, again, here, not an airport, but it's the same idea. And of course, 12 Monkeys ends at an airport. Another great romantic comedy. <laughs> Kate does decide to go with Charlie and Stuart, and they shimmy up the Brooklyn Bridge column once again, and she jumps out through the time portal. In the final scene, we see she joins Leopold at the banquet in very out-of-place modern attire that somehow I didn't notice in the opening scene, so I really got to watch the first (laughs) couple minutes again. wonder if it's still in there. That's not something that I can see why they would cut, but one more thing on this promotion ceremony she was at before she ran away. I feel like it's something they missed in the writing here, where in theory, she would have to be choosing between her career, between this promotion and going after Leopold. But like she basically finishes her speech. It's like, okay, I got to go and then runs away. I don't know. It kind of felt like it might have been a little more impactful if she had to turn down the promotion or something to, to go and do this, because it just kind of felt like she finished her speech and ran away. Yeah, I guess the company is going to have to pick up the pieces here. <laughs> Let's say that she showed up on Monday morning. Boss be like, that was weird. Why'd you leave like right after your speech? Oh, uh, I had to go, I don't know, meet a friend. Okay, well, here's your office. Like, I don't feel like it put a wrench in the actual promotion, although it does make you think we can get here at the end. Like, Actually, let's put a pin in that because I want to talk about the consequences at the end of this film uh, with, with some of the decisions made. So so they've they've gone back in time. Kate is now wearing a uh, 2001 dress at a 1879 ball. And Leopold is about to announce his bride. He's like holding hands with Kristen Shaw. But then, no, <laughs> there's Meg Ryan. And he announces that Kate is going to be his bride. And uh, co- talking consequences, you got to wonder how he's going to dig out of the financial hole since <laughs> that's, that's true. a whole thing they're trying to avoid. But I guess he's going to invent the elevator and it's going to make a, an elevator fortune. I found it hilarious and implausible that this is how he announces who he chooses for his wife. Like they're all just kind of standing there crossing their fingers that it's going to be me. Like it's a game show or something like that. And he's going to announce the name. And that person's going to be like jumping up and down. Oh my God, it's me. It's like, I just won the Academy Award or something like that. Like, I don't think even in 1879 that that's how this courtship would have gone down. Okay, well, I will know (laughs) not to try that then. (laughs) This is another movie where kind of a lot of stuff happened. Uh, It seems like, uh, I mean, when we watched it, it didn't seem like that many mile a minute things, but it did take us a while to get through our recap. Uh, Did you have anything that you wanted to add? Anything that we missed or didn't comment on? in your extended edition viewing. (laughs) Um, So one thing that we kind of talked around but didn't talk directly about is I think the reason that they were so insistent that they cut the reference to Stuart being Leopold's great-great-grandson is because then when Kate would have previously dated Stuart, 
he would be dating his great great grandmother. And so it's like an incesty thing. But that is a far reach to take away from this, given how as like something that would just be too taboo to show. Like think about Back to the Future and how that like smacks you in the face with this exact issue. Uh, an even even more direct one where he is basically attempting to date and fake sexually assault his own mother in the past. I don't know. Right. And I mean, that is much more severe because he actually has to deal with his mother when he goes back. Like your mother is a part of your life in the day to day, whereas your great great grandmother is not. I mean, he didn't have kids with her or anything, so it, it could have been worse. I, I did see a blurb in the Wikipedia article that said the the filmmaker encountered criticism from two especially vocal critics who had a problem with the implication that Kate and Stuart were related in the end. Right. Have you seen the movie Palm Springs, I think it's called? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just say that I kind of thought of that movie in that the movie becomes thoughtful. I would say maybe almost overly thoughtful about its time travel mechanics at the end of the movie to a way that didn't entirely pay off, I would say. Uh, that was another connection I was going to make. But I want to save that one because I actually think I would really want to hear what you have to think about that. I think there's a chance you would like that one. Yeah, I'd like to check it out. Let's talk about some good things about this movie. What did you like about this one, Dan? I assume this is at the top of your list as well, but Hugh Jackman is the highlight of this movie. He's excellent. He is very believable as someone displaced from their reality and like in this kind of olden, almost fantasy time, displaced into modern New York City. And he's just so charming and watchable. I don't know. I actually, this might be the most I've actually really enjoyed Hugh Jackman. Like I know he's good. He's never quite scratched my edge completely. And from an entertainment and engagement perspective, but I thought he was awesome in this. I'm a big Hugh Jackman fan. And sure enough, that is point number one under my good things list. Uh, just Hugh Jackman is charming. Uh, this was one year after his debut in the X-Men movies. I mean, I'm sure he did things before that, but that I think is when he became a superstar. Yeah, he's a handsome dude. Definitely captures the sophisticated vibe of being the English gentleman. And he's very funny. I think of a time in my life when I was younger and I had a view of like the movie star hunks as being dumb and just that being attractive was all they had going for them. But then, you know, there's roles like Brad Pitt from last week does a bunch of stuff where it shows that he is multi-talented. He's genuinely funny and can do some pretty out there stuff. Hugh Jackman, I would say, tends to be a little more buckled down, but he certainly has a good sense of humor. There's a lot that I've seen him in where he can do comedic material well. And I mean, he didn't even sing in this one. <laughs> Hugh Jackman's a good singer. Yeah. There was one scene where they were singing. I hope this was in there because I really enjoyed this. They were singing Modern Major General from Pirates of Penzance. Oh, that's right. They got the keyboard. And he, yeah, he's going over like, I was at the theater last week. Yeah. I, I saw this story. <laughs> it's debut. Yeah, uh, that was that was pretty good. OK, I've been sitting on this one. I, I almost blurted it out twice. I'm about to blow your mind. You ready for this? All right. This movie is almost exactly a gender reversed 
Enchanted from Disney. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of from the past, it's from a fantasy world in Enchanted. And that movie also has a little bit more on love triangles than this one. But what's the highlight of both films? It's like a really good and charming and watchable, like almost Oscar worthy performance from its lead. Who's this person out of time in New York city, but very believably so. And like a lot of the fun of the film comes from this person encountering modern things and interacting with them in the the way that they know where like he's yelling at a toaster and she's like for her because she's a magic princess she can do things like sing to animals and cockroaches come out and clean and stuff but they also are trying to win over this very business focused person who really needs to figure out kind of like how to let go and live with a little more romance and not be so calculated there's a thing where they kind of run away at the end The one difference, though, is in Enchanted, they end up at 2008 or whenever that movie came out. And here, instead of 2001, they end up back in the past. So they ended up in the opposite place. And I got to say, just kind of thinking through some of the consequences of this movie, I feel like Meg Ryan would not adapt well to life in 1879. I feel like it's easier to go from 1879 to 2001 than vice versa. Maybe I'm underselling the amount of, you know, whiplash that you would feel when you (laughs) go from the quaint life of a duke to being a person with no job in modern New York City, but I don't know. I think you're probably right. I listen to a lot of history podcasts, and one point that one of the hosts that I listen to drives home is it would probably be pretty terrible for any of us to go back to really any point pre-antibiotics. Right. That's a good point, too. Like her immune system, her large intestine microbiome, totally not adapted to like the diet that you would have to have then and the germs that you would encounter then. Like he marvels at indoor plumbing. Can you even ponder an existence without indoor plumbing? I am not sure that I can. It would be rough. But just to go back to a moment to your enchanted parallels, it makes me wish all the more that this was a musical. Ah, yeah. That's true. Got to get some some good Central Park dance numbers in there. That's right, yeah. I like Enchanted a lot. Maybe we got to... I think that would be a fun one to talk about. I haven't seen it in a few years. But another thing about that is in that movie, James Marsden plays like a prince who's come back to try and get Giselle. And it's like a lot of similar beats because he's kind of the comic relief in that movie where he's a lot of emphasis on him encountering modern life and reacting to it. And it's a lot of similar beats to Hugh Jackman here. where like Marvel's at a TV running water and these random people on the street who are dressed strangely and all sorts of stuff like that. Point number two on my list of good things is I found this movie surprisingly enjoyable. I know that's probably overly broad praise, (laughs) But I came in with my only knowledge being a 50% Rotten Tomatoes score. So I was definitely expecting more of a crapshoot. I think this was competently produced. The visuals especially were pretty strong. We'll, we'll poke some holes in that in a moment. But I would say overall, this was an enjoyable watch. I agree. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking through the plot, like breaking down plot holes and inconsistencies. But I feel that's not reflective of the overall experience of watching this movie. It's a very breezy film overall it's just pure Hugh Jackman being charming having chemistry with Meg Ryan and glorifying antiquated romance plenty of good barbs back and forth quips 
It's it's fun watch. I, I'm with you. I also liked the writing, at least as far as the dialogue goes. There were some good bits, especially from Hugh Jackman. Yeah, I my favorite line was the the General Electric thing that I talked about, but he he definitely has some good lines in here for sure. I mentioned that it certainly relies on tropes of knight in shining armor, ideal, a guy coming from the past and just capturing bygone chivalry, which it it does well. I, I think they cast Hugh Jackman well in that part. It reminded me, story-wise, a little bit of my dad's favorite time travel movie, which is Time After Time from 1979, where Malcolm McDowell plays... H.G. Wells, who comes to the present of the 70s and gets involved in a romance. And Hugh Jackman makes a much better romantic lead (laughs) than Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell is a dweeb. (laughs) Yeah. And I will always think of him as the absolute creep from Clockwork Orange. To the point of comparing it to other movies, there's a whole like subgenre universe of obsessives around time traveling romances and i think like stereotypically they end sadly it's like pull out the hanky they can't see each other because they need to live in different times but they were such a perfect romance or something along those lines does time after time end with them together or does it end with a hanky it it ends with them together she goes back with him to the past time similar to how this one ends gotcha it kind of makes me want to watch more of them i don't want to over time travel myself but it it's been fun watching a couple of time travel movies in a row. Like I want to see what some, I haven't seen time after time. There's one, I can't remember what it is. Maybe it is time after time that the other podcast, the movie podcast that I listen to a lot, alternate ending. One of the hosts is really obsessed with a time travel movie, but I thought that had Christopher Reeve, not Malcolm McDowell. So maybe I'm thinking of a different one. Time travel's fun, man. Yeah. Time travel romance it's how you can have like a very easy way to get to different worlds, you know, people who have come from different backgrounds but could see something in each other. I don't know. Yeah, I'm very into time travel, for sure. And, and I just looked it up, and the, the Christopher Reeve movie I'm talking about is called Somewhere in Time, not Time After Time. So, Okay, well, I'd always be game to give that one a look. Although I don't think that one is a comedy at all. <laughs> Last thing I wanted to say here is right before our meeting... I was researching H.G. Wells, and he was actually alive up until 1946. And so there's like television footage talking to H.G. Wells. He has the goofiest voice I've ever heard. It's super, super high. It's like a (laughs) Mickey Mouse voice. Oh, man. And definitely going to link to a clip of that in our multimedia section. So I, I don't know if this qualifies as a good thing, but it was very interesting to me. So... Last year, I watched a TV show about a scratchy-voiced woman, I think in New York, in in some city, I think it's New York, actually, who basically encounters her own time travel paradox, and this is called Russian Doll. I brought this up a while ago, uh, I think on another episode, maybe, but at that point, you had not seen Russian Doll. Have you seen Russian Doll? No, still haven't seen that one. So it's it's a Netflix show. It's, it's quite good. I, I would recommend watching it at some point. So the main actress, she's got the voice of what you would consider a smoker, like kind of raspy. She's very sarcastic and dry and cynical. And she, she does a great job. And she is played by the show's creator and head writer, uh, Natasha. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's 
Leone or Lyone, L-Y-O-N-N-E. That actress is Darcy in this movie. So Darcy is like the romantic secretary to Kate. And she is basically unrecognizable both in like how she looks and how she talks, but just that she's playing the exact opposite character. She's not like the, the cynic, the dry wit from New York City. She's like this romantic young woman. So that was funny enough. But the other connection is that actress as a child played Opal, one of the Playhouse gang in Pee Wee's Playhouse. So she's been in two of the last three things that we've seen, neither of which are things that I had any idea that she was in prior to watching it. That's awesome. I'm wondering how many more of these we have to do before we can build a six points of separation web that connects them all. Oh, in our episodes. That's a good point. Yeah. And I already mentioned the other, oh, that person that we saw. So a couple of them, one was Viola Davis and one was Kristen Schaal, for sure. One thing about Kristen Schaal's character that I forgot to mention when we were talking about her is that her name is Tree. She's like the Duchess of Tree or something like that, which I just thought was hilarious is that i don't know if that's actually a thing but that seems like something that you would go back and change in a later edit unless you're trying to (laughs) intentionally include it as a joke like isn't it hilarious that this bland noble lady has a name of tree i don't know i just thought that was kind of funny (laughs) one face i recognized the movies are kind of running together now a little bit for me i think it was in 12 monkeys not this one but it had the guy from law and order svu stapler the one who's not uh, Olivia Benson, the dude who like punches suspects. I think he played a cop in 12 Monkeys. I think yeah. he interrogated Bruce Willis at some point. That's that's neither here nor there, but we were sure. talking about familiar faces. So are we ready to talk about some not quite so good things? Yeah. All right. Well, we touched on it. <laughs> the explanation of time travel is super hand wavy here. Not sure if this is actually a bad thing, as it serves the movie well enough. We don't need to get super technical with how the time travel works exactly, but I was still surprised just how nonchalant everyone is about it. That this pretty normal dude, just somebody's ex-boyfriend, could be like, oh, I time traveled today. I I went through a portal. I did the calculation to know where the portals are, and that's what I did today that people aren't too bowled over by that. How, just how how normal Stuart seems. Like, he just is a guy who drew some stuff on a napkin, and now he knows how to time travel everything. Right, yeah. Yeah, good point. I also think it's weird how normal and well-adjusted Hugh Jackman's character is so quickly. Like, that he's heroized for being, like, romantic and uh, doing things the right, honorable way. When I feel like, I don't know, in the 1880s, Maybe not in Scotland, but certainly in general, like women were not treated well. There was a lot of a lot more injustice in the world than there is now. And I don't know. It's kind of weird to be like taking this guy from the the late 1800s as like someone who has the right values. It's kind of odd to me. Everybody just kind of accepted him for being who he was without like really, really digging into it. I guess the closest we got was uh, the brother character saying, Oh, he's a real method actor, man. He's real into it. That's also a good point about ennobling people from the past when, especially in 2020, it seems like a lot of people want to go forward, not back. I'd say overall, something that you could call this movie is inessential. Maybe you could say forgettable. 
I don't know that this movie is on many people's maps in the year 2020. I think breezy is the right word. It it comes and goes. It's fun while it's there. Unless you really like Hugh Jackman, I don't see how this could be on your top X movies list. It's far from a catastrophe. I feel like 50% is a little kind of low unless people were really going to nitpick on the time travel stuff, which... I feel like it's not worth it for a movie like this, as you were saying. It does its job well enough. We we did our part picking it apart, but maybe that's just because we were in the 12 Monkeys mindset. But I think other than the bizarre elevators thing, it does just fine. About as fine as could be hoped in a movie like this with time travel. Yeah, I agree. Any more criticisms you wanted to lob? So I wanted to talk a little bit about Meg Ryan. I like Meg Ryan a lot. I think she's a natural in these kinds of movies. She's just like is someone who can have good chemistry with another talented actor. And it's always kind of believable, her emotional arc. She's just good at being a romantic comedy actress. And she's been in a bunch of iconic ones. I don't think she's the right actress for this part, though. I guess she's supposed to be older. She was 41 when this movie came out. Which I'm not saying like that all everyone needs to be a 21-year-old hot young thing. But it felt just weird that it kind of went unmentioned. There was one or two scenes where she kind of had little rants about how hard she's worked and how much she's fought for this career. That kind of indicated that we would have someone more grizzled. But other than that, the fact that she is something like seven or eight years older than uh, Hugh Jackman and... You know, she's, of course, still stunningly beautiful. You can tell that she's about 41. Like she does, It's not like she's a 41 who looks like she's 30, you know? That was odd for me. I, I just, it didn't feel right. Not just the oldness, but she just in general felt a little off for the role. And I, I spent a long time thinking about who I would cast if I were to recast this in a dream world. I think number one on the list would be Julia Roberts. If you had gotten Julia Roberts in this, she has the ability where she can like play the professional, like the Aaron Brockovich, but also has that very, I've used this word too much, breezy chemistry where she can just be magnetic on screen with just about anyone. She would have been awesome. She may have been a little less believable as like an advertising executive, but she would have been awesome. Uh, I also think Sandra Bullock would have been pretty good. She's got kind of a similar thing where she can play both the the romantic, but also like is very believable as a working woman. And then here's the one I spent about 10 minutes thinking about Halle Berry. Oh. So she's black <laughs> and I do not feel like you could have her in this role without commenting on that. And I spent a long time thinking, is there any way? Cause I think she's awesome. And I think she like in general would do great at a part like this. She would, she would hit both parts really well. Like both the, believable working woman who has a heart of gold uh, that kind of comes out. But I just don't think there's any way that you could make this movie be a, a lightweight comedy with that element of someone coming from the late 1800s to in the United States and striking up a romance with a black woman. It would be a lot harder for her to decide to settle in the past. That's that true version. too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Again, that would be interesting, though. If you want to explore that dynamic in a Hugh Jackman movie, go watch uh, Greatest Showman. Uh, I haven't seen it. Hugh Jackman is P.T. Barnum in that, and there's a subplot where he's training Zac Efron. Okay. Little 
little little preview for next week. <laughs> Get some Zach Efron in the mix. But he is kind of Barnum's protege, and he has a romance with, I think it's Zendaya, and it kind of is talking about... I don't think it would go over quite as well as it does in the film, but it, it addresses the, the awkwardness yeah. of that a bit, trying to have an interracial uh, romance in the 1800s. Um, did you have more not-so-good things you wanted to talk about? Only that, and I kind of said it already, but... I think they should have leaned a little harder into whatever they wanted to say with the JJ plot. Yeah. He doesn't make for much of a villain or a rival. So right. much so that they just left that thread out of the Wikipedia article. Especially, I hadn't really thought about it, but especially as we talked through it, I completely agree with you on that point. I have a couple other slight variations on this movie that I want to pitch to you and see how oh, you react to it. So one is, and... The reason I didn't elaborate on this is I was like, oh, I was going to say that in a minute. I probably should have just rolled with it there. But the movie that you called Knock Three Times, I want to see these characters before the time travel, like where he's this kind of kooky guy who has a dream and she's trying to be a working woman. That itself would easily be a its own romantic comedy where uh, Lee Schreiber and Meg Ryan, who live upstairs and downstairs from each other and keep bumping into each other and have, what is it called? Propinquity. Right. That, that could have been a good movie. I want to see that movie. It would be very different. It wouldn't have the time travel aspect and it wouldn't have a uh, Hugh Jackman hamming it up or not hamming it up, but charming it up, I guess. So that's one. I have another one. I already mentioned the version where Halle Berry plays Kate. I want to see that one very much. Here's a sequel though. Kate and Leopold two lost in New York. You ready for this? Okay. The sequel. So, as I predicted, Kate hates the late 19th century. And in a moment of panic, she jumps off a bridge and it brings her back to 2001. But now she's stuck here because she, she tries to find Stuart. And Stuart's going to explain uh, how, he can, how she can get back. But Hugh Jackman follows her back. Except... Because it's it's modern New York, not old-fashioned New York. He is now lost in New York himself, trying to find Kate. And Kate is trying to find her way back. This is where you have the, the dramatic chase at the end, where for whatever reason, maybe, uh, I don't know, you can hand wave some more time travel stuff, but the time loop is going to close forever. And uh, this is their, her last chance to get back and his last chance to get back. She's just about to jump off the bridge to go back to where she thinks he is. But, he, no, he, he stops her just in time. And she's like, well, let's go back to your home. Let's go back to, your, to, to where you should be. Let's jump together. And he's like, no, let's not. Let's stay here where you want to be. And so then they end up in 2001 at the end of that one as opposed to ending up in 1879. That's what my sequel looks like. I kind of like that. I have an even, an even darker twist. You could do that slightly differently, have them end up going back. But... Okay, what if you made this the sequel super dark and twisted and Kate in her panic with Stuart gets into this tense argument where she he doesn't want to help her anymore, but it turns into this like like sexual thing and they end up sleeping together and she gets pregnant with his baby but still decides to go back in time and the baby that she has is actually Stuart's baby but ends up being Stuart's grandfather down the line. Yeah, I think you got to do that. <laughs> I agree. That's how they do it in Futurama. Oh, okay. And Fry ends up being his own grandfather. 
All right, here's the last movie that I actually want to see that's a, a variation on this. I want to see the movie from the perspective of the nurse who believes Stuart. So, like, her whole perspective is this guy comes in rambling about time travel, and she's gradually falling for him. And she doesn't know whether he's just crazy or whether he's telling the truth. And at the last moment, she decides to let him be free. And they end up reunited, but it, and I don't know exactly how it turns out. But I like the dynamic where you don't know. she Like, she has to believe that he's not crazy. Like, that's just kind of thrown away here. And I was like, oh, I want to see more of that. Are you... um? Are you making a meme here, Dan? No, why? I'm pretty sure that was exactly the plot of last week's movie. (laughs) Damn, I just reinvented 12 Monkeys, didn't I? I wish I could say that that had occurred to me prior to this discussion. Now I feel like an idiot. But I still do think that that would be a, uh, a fun premise. I agree. Clearly, they need to revisit the Kate and Leopold cinematic universe. I will say... One thing I wanted to reference is I saw, I think it was a webcomic or something on Instagram not that long ago, where the writer of the cartoon said that she saw a headline that said, Kate and Leo together again. (laughs) And she immediately assumed, wait, they're making a Kate and Leopold sequel? (laughs) But it was about Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio finally being in another movie together. That's good. That's clever. So I am ready to rate. Would you say that you are ready to rate? Yeah, let's dive in. All right. So not to take too long, but I just wanted to run down quickly that after 15 episodes, it's starting to crystallize for me how I feel about the movies that fall at each rating. They're just kind of getting a little more defined in terms of what kind of movie gets what value. So I just wanted to quickly run down the list how I've been thinking about these things, and then I'll let you give your your verdict. Sounds good. Yeah, I want to hear this. For me, a movie that gets a one, a very not good, has to be an inept production. It has to be fundamentally, technically flawed, something that's hard to watch. So for me, this is Robert 2015. (laughs) You beat me to the joke. It has to go full Robert. That's right. A two, a not good, is probably going to have distasteful subject matter or a tone that I just really don't like, or maybe a movie that's incredibly boring gets a not good. A number three, a not not good, is something that is uninteresting to me, and maybe it's a competent production, but it is just not engaging to me, and maybe it is quote-unquote annoying, might get a three. Uh, Number four, good-ish, would be a movie that has its heart in the right place, but something is holding me back from recommending it. This, I think, is probably the rating I'd be least likely to give. I've only given it to one of our 15 movies so far. Good, a number five, is an enjoyable experience, although I think I would be unlikely to bring up the movie or recommend it out of the blue. Six, very good, is a movie that tries to do something notable and will probably have some degree of personal appeal to me, and I will reference it. I'll bring it up in conversation if the subject matter is relevant. Number seven, exceptionally good, is a movie which is powerful and distinctive, has a lot of personal appeal, and it's one that I will recommend without any prompting. 
Finally, top of the charts, cream of the crumb, Tour de Good. This is a movie that prompts repeated viewing, and at least most of the elements of the production are masterful, and the movie lives on in my mind. I find myself thinking about it a long time after. So I just wanted to put that out there. That's, that's what I've been thinking about. That's compelling. Thank you for, for breaking it down. One thing that you didn't really talk about here, and maybe you haven't don't need to think about this, it's just a case-by-case basis, but do you think about it from like a distribution perspective? Do you think it's like a pretty even mix? Because I guess what I'm getting at is like, if hypothetically, if you gave every movie an eight out of an eight, an eight out of eight wouldn't mean anything. Right. So to some extent, you need like to mix up the ratings a little bit. Right, right. Like a bell bell curve, right? Does it have a standard deviation? It's funny you say bell curve, because to me, that's exactly how I've been trying to think about it is like right in the middle, you have a four and a five. And to me, like the majority of movies that are made that we would encounter are in the realm of goodish to good. It's your kind of run of the mill entertainment at that point on letterboxd. Whenever I watch a movie and rate a movie, I don't give it a five-star rating, which is the system that they have there. But another option they have is you can either like or not like a movie. And for me, in the same way that you might like have a bell curve and like the top center point is the exact bridge between goodish and good. If I watch that movie and think I would rate it as good or higher, then I give it the heart to say I did like it. And if I would rate it four or lower, I don't give it a heart to say that I don't like it. Interesting. I feel like my ratings might be skewed a little towards the positive. I don't know what the mentality behind that is. Either that there's a filter keeping really bad movies from being made, or if I spend my time on it, I'm psychologically inclined to say, oh, it must have had value if I spent my time on it. It might be some of that. It might also just be like survivor's bias, where if something rises to the level where we would notice it or like we would hear good buzz about it or it would be something we'd be interested in, we're probably more likely to think that it's at least middle of the road, if not better. And certainly the movies I try to bring here, there are going to be exceptions, but in general, I'm going to bring things here that I think that either I will like or will have enough interesting stuff to talk about that at least is not a total train wreck. Right. I think we're trying to bring things to the table that will be interesting to talk about. And just that may lean us towards the more positive ratings. It is the goods, after all. Right. Although we could certainly mix it up. We could bring some bad stuff to the table. I've been thinking about one day maybe pitching my least favorite movie. But Oh, that would be interesting. I, I have a small number of movies that... I either don't like and want to talk about or I have no idea how good it is because I haven't seen it in more than a decade, probably more than two decades, and very likely might not be that good. Like I might at some point recommend the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie from 1995, <laughs> which I have no reason to believe is good at all, but I liked when I was a kid. Well, if we do that, then obviously we got to watch the whole series leading up to it. <laughs> yeah, I if we did that, I would spend a decent amount of time talking about my younger brother's obsession with the Japanese series and how he's instructed all of us on where the American adaptation lives in the lore and the chronological true arc of the Japanese like Super Sensei or something like that Power Rangers series. Right. Uh, is that uh, tokuzatsu? Is that a relevant term? I think it is. I have no idea. I got to be honest. Okay. <laughs> Well, I'm glad we had that discussion. 
now that we know a little bit more about where we stand in terms of ratings, as our guest today, where does Kate and Leopold 2001 fall for you? So it's funny. I was pretty solidly locked in on good when we started recording. And I feel like we mostly talked about things that either were weird or didn't quite work. So I'm down on the lower end of good, maybe good-ish. But I, I just thinking back on when I actually watched it, did I enjoy myself? I did. So it's good. I'm going to land on good. Uh, Hugh Jackman is the highlight. There's weird stuff around it, but it's an enjoyable watch. It's it's well made. There's plenty of plenty of good stuff to talk about. There's some weird stuff. There's disappearing elevators that don't make any sense, and that's always a markdown whenever that happens in a plot for me. So uh, you know, maybe not quite up to very good or exceptionally good, but I enjoy it. Just not as much as its gender flipped counterpart, Enchanted. Oh, it's one of those disappearing elevator movies. <laughs> Yeah, I got to say, coming into this, I was leaning towards six. Very good. I had a good experience watching this. Everybody I watched it with enjoyed it. And I think if you don't go at it with too critical of an eye, it's a charming movie. Score is good. Production value is reasonably high. We did talk about some criticism. So I think I'm going to slide back also to a five, a good I think this meets, what did I say? An enjoyable experience, unlikely to bring it up or recommend it out of the blue. I'm not sure. I might bring it up because I'm I'm a Hugh fanboy. So it's somewhere somewhere in between there, five and six. But I, I think I'll settle on a five for our official chart. It's an upper end five for you and a lower end five for me. Correct. Sounds good. All right. So before you depart, Dan and, and you viewers, what is on the agenda for next time? Yeah, that's a good question. So we've done 15 episodes now, 16 if you include our guest appearance on another podcast. All of those except one have been a discussion of a movie or two movies. And one of them was a discussion of a miniseries. Ever since we did that and it kind of opened the door to potentially doing TV shows, one that I've been wanting to talk about is High School Musical, The Musical, The Series a Disney Plus exclusive show that I guess is not a miniseries because they are doing a second season, but it's kind of a self-contained story in 10 episodes. So it's it's longer than uh, Over the Garden Wall because that's 10 episodes, but those are around 11 or 12 minutes. This is 10 episodes that are about 22 minutes. So it's, it's longer than a normal movie, but I want to watch this and I want to talk about it with you because I have a lot of thoughts. And so I was asking you if you would still be down for it yesterday. So I I, I IM'd you and you said, sure, we can do that. And then an hour later, you IM me back. Hey, I'm actually watching High School Musical 1 now. And I was like, oh, wow, that's dedication. Cool. And then we talked a little bit about that. And then when I woke up this morning, you had texted me at 1230 in the morning saying, well, I just watched High School Musical 1, 2, and 3 back to back and that's some dedication to prepping for an episode or maybe you're just enjoying it enough that you wanted to keep watching it maybe you're a completionist I don't know but I I appreciated that it's funny though I was actually waffling a little bit thinking about uh this is my last shot to do a holiday movie maybe I'll push that off for one but at this point I'm just gonna go with it we're gonna we're gonna I couldn't come up with a good holiday movie anyways I really wanted to talk about maybe some that I'll save for next year but let's do it let's talk about high school musical the musical the series which is a Disney Plus exclusive series 
as I mentioned, I think it stands on its own mostly, but you really should know High School Musical 1 because it's pretty beholden to High School Musical 1, even though it's not like directly connected to it. Okay, good to know. I will say more next week, but okay. <laughs> I had seen High School Musicals 1 and 2 before. I'd never seen 3. Finally checked that off. My mindset is if I can tack those three movies onto the runtime, they're about two hours each. So that's uh, that's six hours. And then 10, 20 minute episodes, that's 200 minutes. So that's... Let's bump it up to 240 minutes. So that would be uh, four hours of that. Right, right. So it's about uh, 600 minutes total. If I can bump you up to picking something that takes 800 minutes then I can make you watch Gravity Falls at some point. Oh, so. interesting. <laughs> so you're just paving the way. That's what I'm building towards. <laughs> I want to go go ahead and pick some long stuff because maybe eventually down the line I can get you to watch that. Sounds good. I will be ready. All right. We, we can get there. It'll take time. And, and then from there to the 45 peanut specials all in a row. <laughs> that would be a heck of a week. Or we were also talking about... Uh... <laughs> Disney Channel original movies, and I found a list of like 105 of them. That would be a heck of a week. We could do that, too. <laughs> heck of a week. I think <laughs> there's like 106 hours in a week, and we're going to watch 105 <laughs> movies. So, All right. <laughs> Got to get some multiple screens going at once. And all that and more in the future, listeners. Stay tuned here on The Goods, and happy holidays. Thank you.